welcome back to Chris and Reggie's Weird Comics History, episode number 31, where we bring you some weird comics history on Tuesdays. You can find us on chrisandreggie.podbean.com or subscribe to us via iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean, Google Play, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and appearing next month on Wizard Magazine's Top 10. We hope... Mm, we got the letters in the mail. We're, we're you, working on it. If you talk to the right people, we're going to be there. This uh, <laughs> this here is uh, part two of uh, of two of our series about the direct market. But uh, before that, we're going to jump into a little bit of recap. Yeah, let's catch you guys up. Uh, since the turn of the 20th century, newsstands and other periodical points of purchase would be able to return unsold magazines, newspapers, mass market paperbacks, and comic books to the distributor for full credit. Jump into the 1950s, where a comic book fandom grew around letters columns and connections made through publishers. And that fandom would create an aftermarket for old comics. And we have had thrift stores and mail-order businesses began advertising in new comics and in fanzines and uh, all the publications. Sure. Uh, we've got a Brooklyn-born high school teacher named Phil Suling. He approached comic publishers with the idea to sell him bulk comic books at a reduced price... However, without the possibility of returns. Ooh. Now, the, these additional comics would be kept to sell in the aftermarket eventually. Phil would found Seagate Distributors in 1972, selling batches of five or more comics to collectors and a growing number of retailers around the country. Pretty quickly, regional distributors cropped up to service local outlets and also to move underground comics from sol- from smaller publishers. And that is the direct market right there. Uh, is in the, in the shell of a nut. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> uh, now, some of these regional distributors would succeed, some would fail, spectacularly even, uh, for a variety of reasons. You really will have to check the last episode to find out all those different factors contributing to these uh, things. But the short of it is, larger distributors absorbed smaller ones, and larger ones still absorbed those when they failed. And so that by the late 1980s, there were three comic book distributors in the United States. Steve Jeppe's Diamond Distribution, Milton Griep's Capital City Distribution, and a much smaller piece of that pie went to Ivan Snyder's Heroes World Distribution. We didn't hear a lot about them in the last episode, but we're going to hear a whole lot about them in this one. Oh, yes. Uh, now, while all these distribution companies were playing do si with one another, the comic book industry was changing rapidly. More serious autobiographical works like Art Spiegelman's Prisoner on Hell Planet in 1971 and Harvey P. Carr's American Splendor in 1976 brought underground comics out from their drug-fueled roots into respectable comics and more mainstream distribution. Black and white comics like Cerebus the Aardvark by Dave Sim, which began in 1977, and Elf Quest by Richard and Wendy Peeney beginning in 1978 added to this respectability as well. Marvel and then DC were dabbling in some direct market exclusive comics and editions. Uh, the first was Marvel's Dazzler, and that debuted with a cover date of March 1981. Over on his own blog, uh, Marvel EIC at the time Jim Shooter wrote, at the, end of the, uh, at the end of 1980, Marvel published the first regular-sized comic book that was sold exclusively through the direct market, Dazzler No. 1. It sold 428,000 copies. After that success, many more direct-only offerings were published by Marvel and others. As the direct market boomed, increasingly it became the focus of Marvel. It was a low-margin business, yes, but it was a firm sale, and it was pretty easy to target direct market consumers. We knew what they wanted. It was like shooting fish in a barrel. In 1984, DC Comics began a program that they called Hardcover Softcover, and that included titles New Teen Titans, 
Legion of Superheroes, and Batman and the Outsiders. Now, they would publish the comics initially on a higher-quality paper, that's that Baxter paper, for the direct market, and then they would reprint those same stories one year later on pulp paper for the newsstand market. Yeah, and you could pick these out in the wild with the uh, barcode. It either has a barcode or it has uh, Spider-Man's face, right? That's basically the two <laughs> ways it goes. Uh, in 1986, DC Comics coined the term prestige format when it released these individual chapters of Frank Miller's uh, The Dark Knight Returns that had four issues, February through June 1986 cover dates. Now, prestige refers to a square-bound, high-quality comic of 48 or 64 pages that will only be available at comic shops, at least at that time. It was priced at $2.95 an issue when the average comic book was a dollar, and DC Comics promoted The Dark Knight Returns as a thought-provoking action story. Despite that price, the title sold phenomenally well and continues to sell very well in various mm-hmm. collected editions right to this very minute. Oh, yeah. In 1988, DC Comics released The Killing Joke by Alan Moore and Brian Boland as a prestige format comic book. The graphic novel won the Eisner Award for Best Graphic Album and garnered Alan Moore the Best Writer Award in 1989 and also sold incredibly well, despite the fact that people have changed their minds about the story's content in more recent times. It actually was out of print for a number of years. It was only in print in the Best of Alan Moore book, but then it came back into print and that seemed to uh, stir things up. And then in 1989, they released Arkham Asylum, A Serious House on Serious Earth by Grant Morrison and Dave McKean. And Grant Morrison says he made more than $100,000 from the first printing. Personally, like in yeah. pocket. Not, not the book made that much. So it did very, very well. Uh, all these books and more are evergreen titles, meaning they sell perennially and forever, uh, routinely showing up on the best-selling graphic novels list for any given time. Marvel hasn't been as robust with their strictly prestige titles, though they have made significant movement into this collected edition market, especially in, like I'd say, the last 10 years. Oh, yeah, uh, they've, they've, they've over, overtaken DC as the, uh, as the kings of that, I think. At this point, yeah, they really have. They came out with that Epic uh, Collections thing. The Epic Collections, but, yeah. You know, for a long time, they, they seem to lag. But since these are not exclusive to comic shops and, in fact, sell very well in traditional bookstores today, we're going to move on from this subject now. But they were once yes. a comic shop thing only. That's the point. Absolutely. Now, uh, we're going to talk a little bit about the speculator boom. The first rumblings of a speculator boom really began in 1984, when Kevin Eastman and Peter Laird of Dover, New Hampshire, published the first issue of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. We went over a little of this in our History of Underground Comics, but uh, specific to this series, uh, the book premiered in May 1984 at a comic book convention in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, printed in oversized magazine-style format on cheap newsprint, and had a print run of only 3,275 copies. Comics collectors were already speculating on black-and-white independent comics, but this issue shot things into the stratosphere. Tales tell of immediate in-store markups of the first issue of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Within a few months, the first issue commanded prices 50 or more times the cover price. So we're talking like 75 bucks or more. Mm -hmm. Uh, Today, a mint condition copy of that first issue is valued at... Twenty thousand dollars. Wow! Now that's a lot of dough for a for a bit of newsprint. That is something. (laughs) Uh, From roughly 1985 through 1993, comic book speculation reached its highest peaks. This boom period began with the publication of titles like Batman: The Dark Knight Returns and Watchmen, and comic book events like Crisis and Infinite Earths and Secret Wars. Around 1975, a nice copy of Action Comics number one sold for about four hundred dollars. 
Ten years later, it commanded five-figure sums and higher, and today, as we know, over a million dollars. Seven-figure sums, yeah. yeah. Tremendous. Uh, a new breed of comics collectors look to their hobby solely for financial gain, buying and selling older comics as well as buying multiple comic copies of new comics in the hopes they would someday become the next Action Comics number one. Uh, it was the hope of many, and this was said a lot, that their comics collections would put the kids through college or could be sold later for a comfortable retirement. Uh, during this time, mainstream comic book publishers began to pander specifically to the collector's market with techniques including variant covers, polybags, and gimmick covers. The direct market expanded from 6 to 70% of total comic book sales from 1978 to 1992. Variant covers are fairly self-explanatory. An alternate cover that might convince a collector to buy two copies where he might have just only bought one. Uh, when a comic is polybagged, the collector had to choose between ripping open the bag and reading the comic book or keeping it in pristine sealed condition or, again, buying two or more copies and doing <laughs> both, which was more likely. Absolutely. Now, gimmicks included things like glow-in-the-dark, hologram-enhanced, die-cut, embossed, uh, foil-stamped, or foil-embossed covers. Uh, these were almost entirely cosmetic in nature and almost never extended to improved content of the comics. Sometimes it felt like the opposite. Uh, but they did sure improve the sales numbers. And we talked about a whole bunch of those gimmicks when we uh, talked about Gen 13 number 13 back in episode 44 of the Cosmic Treadmill, yeah. which is available in the archives. In the archives, yeah. But I just wanted to, I just want to reiterate that it did spike the sales numbers. You know, the reason Absolutely. that the companies, did, the publishers did this is it made them a ton it of worked. money. I think, I, think <laughs> I think there's a belief that it was like, you know, there was some sort of a money-shifting situation. No, it, it worked. It made a lot of money for mm -hmm. these people. Absolutely. Uh, now, another company that uh, brought in some money to uh, various uh, publishers is yep. Wizard Magazine. Now, Wizard launched in July 1991. Then with issue number seven, the magazine would switch to glossy paper and color printing. Wizard would be an instant hit and hit a monthly circulation of more than 100,000 copies. By 1993, Wizard strongly supported new publishers, Valiant and Image, heavily promoting their new releases and embodying the comic speculator culture. Now, Wizard will almost certainly get its own episode of Weird Comics History sooner or later, so we're only going to touch upon how they affected the perception and health of the, you know, quote-unquote, booming industry. Mm -hmm. uh, while Wizard could have been viewed as a, quote, news outlet for fans of the comics industry, it wasn't unusual for them to sort of create the news. Oh, for sure. As a speculatory publication, one of its most important and likely dog-eared sections were the monthly price guide portion. Uh, indeed, a certain portion of the customer base used Wizard's price guide as something of a stocks report and allowed it to dictate their purchases, often several weeks late, leading them to paying already inflated prices with the hopes that values would continue to rise. While the Overstreet price guide was annual, with sporadic updates throughout the year, Wizard was monthly, giving the illusion that values were rising and falling in nearly real time, or... Realer time, right? Something like this. Realer uh, time, yeah. <laughs> and that's that's fine, right? That that should be fine. Uh, but in an age where the definition of a milestone and therefore perceptions of value expanded to include specific creators' first issues on a title, first appearances of different uniforms, countless gimmick covers, uh, Wizard would sometimes take it to the next step and pump up the value of issues based on rumor, and in certain cases, rumors that they themselves had started. Yeah, case in point, Superman Volume 2, number 66, April 1992, cover date, Panic in the Sky, Our Army at War. Now, Wizard Magazine reported that this issue featured the first appearance of Doomsday. 
And, you know, that's that monster that killed Superman, and we'll be talking a bit more about him in a little bit. Mm. Uh, They even included this issue in their top ten throughout the first half of 1993, which is several months after the death of Superman. Wizard says, The rumor mill is churning out that this is the first appearance of Doomsday, who is Brainiac's Doomsday weapon. DC announcing the release of the Panic in the Sky trade paperback with an added page has done wonders for this book's popularity as well. So the rumor will, rumor mill, which, you know, is Wizard, clearly weren't reading the Superman books at the time. Otherwise, they would know that Brainiac's Doomsday Weapon was explained the very next issue. That was Superman Volume 2, number 67, May 1992 cover date. It was basically a swarm that right. Brainiac had sent to take over the Earth. And, you know, of course, Superman won. Uh, but this did not <laughs> stop Wizard from marking the value of this issue up to $10 in their August 1993 issue. So I guess it's uh, it's all about playing the long game. Absolutely, you know what I mean? Yeah, and, and they created this whole... Uh, you drop the breadcrumbs and uh, you cash in. Yeah, yeah, and when people swarm together, then the, the price does rise artificially, but, you know, it only lasts so long. Mm-hmm. Uh, now we only bring that up, and that's, that is just one instance where something like that happened. Certainly. Uh, we, to illustrate how easy it is to affect the perception of the rabid speculator, speculatory consumer... If you wanted to believe you were going to make money hand over fist with comic books, there were many publications out there who were more than happy to give you the confirmation you sought. And it probably goes without saying, also, DC didn't add anything Doomsday related to the Panic in the Sky trade paperback, So, because that would have made it make no sense. You'd be like, what is this yep. thing here? It was just a punch, right? Or a thum or something like this? Uh, Doomsday wasn't in it at all. It was yeah. not even in it. There was not even <laughs> no, so that was a bunch of nonsense. Um, yeah, but I, I do wanted to say real quick though that at this time, in this little sliver of time, people were making money. Like people did actually put themselves through college off of their uh, comics collection. Sure. In in like between ninety and ninety three, you could do that. You know what I mean? Like it just seemed like yeah, it was, you, had, you had to hit it and get it. If yeah. you if you didn't, you know, you, and it wasn't gonna it wasn't gonna be on the backs of your uh, X Men number ones. But anyway. <laughs> So while, you know, things, they're living high on the hog, money is flowing. So in 1991, Marvel published X-Men Volume 2, Number 1, October, by Chris Claremont and superstar artist Jim Lee. It had five variant covers, and the issue sold 7 million copies that earned it a place in the Guinness Book of World Records, which still has never been usurped, as far as we know. I haven't seen anything... That sold more than that. That's it, yeah. Uh, We've only touched on it here, but sports and collectible card speculation was big, if not bigger, in dollar amount than what was happening in comics. I'm just going to throw that out there. Cards were huge. Uh, On July 24th, 1992, Marvel acquired trading card manufacturer Fleer for $286 million. They purchased another card company, Skybox International, on March 8th, 1995, for $150 million. Skybox at the time held the trading card license for DC Comics characters. From Wall Street, this was viewed as a good move for Marvel, says Alexander Paris Jr., the uh, certified something accountant, president of Barrington <laughs> Research. The acquisition of Skybox is a good strategic move because it certainly eliminates competition in the collectible trading card business and adds to Marvel's market position. Now, they merged those two trading card companies into Fleer Skybox International, which... Uh, is a pretty lame corporate identity coming from the House of Ideas. Really? I mean, you could call it a spider card or something, right? <laughs> right. Now, for further evidence of Marvel's shopping spree, it was even rumored around this time that they had acquired Bongo Comics. That's Matt Groening's company that published all the Simpsons-related comics. So 
people saw Marvel just flash in their wallet. Yeah, you know? they were they were, they were taking everything, everything that they could. Sure, and and nothing was too far fetched. It was just. <laughs> They're going for anything. Uh, now, on December 28th, 1994, the third biggest comics distributor, we mentioned them earlier, Heroes World, they were bought by Marvel Comics to act as the company's exclusive distributor. This will prove to be an important decision that we'll get back to in just a moment. In 1993, Toy Biz made the unusual move of getting an exclusive, perpetual, royalty-free license to Marvel's characters for 46% of Toy Biz's equity. This effectively gave Ron Perlman a controlling stake in the company, and that's a move that will also prove important later on. Talk a little bit here about the death of comics collecting. Uh, now, in late 1980s, early 1990s, there were four titles featuring Superman per month. We've got Action Comics, Superman, Volume 2, The Adventures of Superman, and Superman the Man of Steel. The creators involved would have routine Superman summits to coordinate storylines, and in 1992, they conceived of one that would hopefully juice those sales numbers. Now, the plan was to have Clark Kent and Lois Lane finally get married, but Warner Brothers told the writing team to stop because ABC television show Lois and Clark, The New Adventures of Superman, was heading for a wedding episode, and they didn't want the comic to get a jump on the television show. So Lois and Clark wouldn't get married on TV for another four <laughs> years, incidentally, in that episode, season four, episode three, Swear to God, This Time We're Not Kidding, would air October 6, 1996. The Superman wedding album comic book, Wedding of Lois and Clark, would be released that very week. So they did hold off, at least. Yes. But uh, while brainstorming for new ideas, Jerry Ordway jokingly suggests they should kill Superman. Mike Carlin, reflecting on poor sales, the Superman books decided it was the best option. Beginning with Superman, The Man of Steel, number 17, November 1992, cover date, a bony monster named Doomsday begins appearing at the end of books in the Superman line, breaking out of some underground prison. Superman, volume 2, number 75, January 1993, cover date, contained Superman's fight to the death with Doomsday. There were four variants of issue number 75, a, a standard newsstand edition, a direct market edition, a collector's edition sold in a poly bag with a black armband, posters, stickers, and a trading card, and a platinum edition, which was the same thing but in a silver poly, or platinum poly bag, I believe. Yeah, uh, the, the, S was, uh, the S was in platinum, yeah. There you go. So, yeah, and the rest of it was black. Uh and we covered this event and this issue, episodes 63 through 66 of the podcast, uh, Comics Cosmic Treadmill, available in our archives and as a box set on weirdcomicshistory.blogspot.com. The story attracted unprecedented coverage from the mainstream media. NPR reviewer Glenn Weldon stated, News outlets like Newsweek, People, and New York Newsday pounced upon the story. Indeed, it was a front-page story on news, for Newsday on September 4th, 1992, and that would break the news to the mainstream media. And uh, there was a plucky young paper boy who delivered that, uh, oh, that paper on this show. And you said, <laughs> gee, I'm going to get me that copy. Right? <laughs> I, I went from door to door. Superman's dying. Superman's dying. <laughs> I, got, I got hit with a lot of hoses that, that day. Yeah. <laughs> now, comic book retailers ordered 5 million copies of Superman number 75 in advance. And many people who had never read comics bought the issue in hopes of it becoming an expensive, uh, an expensive collector's item. Uh, DC shipped between 2.5 and 3 million copies of the issue when it was released on November 17, 1992, and it sold out across America. Some stores, like mine, had a one-per-customer limit on the issue to avoid mobs and lines of customers longer than a city block. Issue number 75 brought in a total of $30 million during its first day on sale, wow. and ultimately sold more than 6 million copies, making it the best-selling comic book issue of 1992. 
the month of release, sales from Superman 75 doubled DC's market share. And some would say that this is the end of the glory days of comic book speculation. You can make up your own mind about what really happened to that glory, though. Yeah, so you know, especially you got that one per customer deal, and you try to not, you know, try to save a poly bag to one. Sure. What a mean, <laughs> what a mean trick to play. Uh, now, Superhero Enterprises. This is a company founded by Ivan Snyder in 1975 and headquartered in Randolph, New Jersey. During the early 1970s, Snyder was head of licensing for Marvel Comics Group's merchandising department, selling things via mail order. Marvel discontinued their mail order service in the mid-70s, and Snyder purchased that business in 1975. Superhero Enterprises initially run from Snyder's apartment, then it moved to a storefront in Morristown, New Jersey. Finally added DC Comics products after opening a second store in Livingston. In 1983, Mego, the toy people, sold the trademark to the word superhero to Marvel and DC as part of their bankruptcy, and so Superhero Enterprises was forced to rebrand to the more familiar Heroes World. By 1982, Snyder had a retail chain of 12 stores, which is pretty amazing, even at this point yeah. in time. 82 is still very early in this comics market, uh, all the while the mail order component was still going strong. A catalog was produced in conjunction with the also New Jersey-based Joe Kubert School of Cartoon and Graphic Design. By 1994, Heroes World was North America's third largest comics distributor. A number one was Diamond, as we said, naturally, and two was Capital City. On December 28, 1994, Marvel Comics would purchase, or perhaps repurchase, Heroes World and name it as Marvel's exclusive distributor. This means that the largest comics company at the time would be pulling their entire line away from Diamond and Capital City, resulting in a drop of one-third of their, that's the distributor's, market share. However, from Marvel's point of view, it was removing a middleman and thus adding an extra 5% to their bottom line. <laughs> so, good enough. Yeah. Uh, Terry Stewart, who was then Marvel Comics president, he described the move as, quote, propelling comic retailers into the future. Frank Miller, on the other hand, said Marvel was, quote, declaring war on the direct market. <laughs> Wizard Magazine would actually come down and agree with Miller. In a news item from Wizard Magazine number 46, June 1995, they would say the following in regards to how much this could hurt comic shops. They say, Most comics retailers have a fairly narrow profit margin, and the price they pay the distributor depends largely on how much they spend. The bigger their order, the bigger their discount, and many stores do all of their business with one distributor to maximize that discount. Now they'll have to split their comics orders between two sources, assuming they wish to continue selling Marvel Comics or, conversely, wish to sell anything besides Marvel Comics. Splitting the order reduces the size of each order, thus lowering the discount. Many stores will no longer be profitable and will probably shut down. Capital City distributors would file suit to try and stop this all from going down, citing the arrangement against uh, being against Wisconsin fair trade laws. It was settled within days. Capital's president, Milton Griep, described the settlement as follows. We're happy with the settlement because we feel it will help secure Capital's future. So, money talks. They got, some, they got some money <laughs> and they stopped complaining. That's all that <laughs> happened there. Uh, Marvel's Heroes World, the exclusive distribution model, would go into effect with the books that shipped July 1995. Spider-Man was in the midst of the Clone Saga. The Avengers titles were in the Crossing event. The X-Men had just returned to Prime Marvel following the Age of Apocalypse, which we're still just following that ourselves. And of particular note, this also means that Marvel was no longer part of the Diamond Top 100, which 
without the context of why they weren't there, it makes it look as though suddenly Image was the top comic publisher in the world by far. Uh, there was also a plan to distribute Marvel merchandise and comics exclusively at Marvel Marts. This is a project overseen by one of Marvel's rotating cast of presidents around the time, Jerry Calabrese. Probably in response to the Warner Brothers studio stores that proliferated throughout American malls in the 1990s, but they only sold merchandise and like animation cells and yeah. mugs and stuff like this. Balls, yeah. Luckily, Marvel Marts never happened, thank goodness, especially when <laughs> we see what went on. Uh, Chuck Rosansky of uh, Mail Order fame says... Of uh, Mile High, yeah. Oh, yeah, uh, Mile High, right? Without Marvel Comics to distribute, all of the surviving direct markets comics distributors suddenly found their overall sales volume reduced by 35 to 40%, while their operating costs remained constant. Now, this would lead to Steve Geppi, the owner of Diamond, entering into negotiations in order to shore up the remaining big-time comics publishers. Which then bled into to the capital city folks, John Davis and Milton Greep, doing the same. The industry was not in a healthy place at this point. But maybe, and that's a huge maybe, if they'd done this three or four years prior and without the bottom eventually falling out, it might have been something yeah. uh, big. Yeah. <laughs> now... Over at Marvel's side here, uh, ultimately, Heroes World did not have su the sufficient infrastructure to handle Marvel's weekly shipments. The entire endeavor was really a pretty big disaster. Yeah. <laughs> uh, shipping mistakes were commonplace at a time when you know people weren't visiting the shops as much anymore. Even more tragically, billing errors were commonplace at a time where shops were struggling to even keep the lights on. In their first week, Heroes World received thousands of complaint calls to report problems, causing the distributor to have to set up additional phone lines in order to cover the volume, which, get this, caused their phone system to <laughs> literally overheat. Wow. That is, get hot enough, <laughs> literally. Yeah. And it put them out of commission for three days, and uh, we want to remind you, this is their first week. That's the first week, yeah. I mean, they physically couldn't handle the, the call volume, so that's... Uh... Just tells you what a what a bad move that was. Mm -hmm. uh, Rosansky goes on to say, the Heroes World management team failed miserably in the PR war to win the hearts and minds of comics retailers. In fact, rather than win over any converts to Marvel, the hassle of having to place two new comics orders each month, sometimes at a lower overall discount, remember they were buying less now, incentives may have fallen off because of that, plus paying freight costs on Heroes mm. World shipments, pushed many comics retailers to the brink of closing their stores. And, I mean, you, you got to kind of imagine somebody who, you know, maybe getting a little, uh, you know, out of comics. This is the kind of thing that would just push them out totally. You know, they go to, oh, the, yeah. they go to the store one day, the X-Men they wanted wasn't there, they'd never come back. That's the end, you know, that's, that's how easy it can happen. Sure. Uh, so throughout 1995 and 1996, Heroes World continued to make a mess of things, losing business opportunities for Marvel and finding them faced with lawsuits. Wizards of the Coast cut Heroes World off from distributing their Magic the Gathering collectible card game in August 1995. Went out of business in 1997, forcing Marvel back into the waiting arms of Diamond, who by now was the last distributor standing. Mm-hmm. Well, who could have seen this coming? We do have some people who did, including in 1993, a writer Neil Gaiman stood before about 3,000 retailers and said... You can sell a lot of comics to the same person, especially if you tell them that they're that you're invested money for high guaranteed returns. But you're selling bubbles and tulips. One day the bubble will burst and the tulips will rot in the warehouse. Hmm. Speaking of rot, <laughs> 
<laughs> Death Made, six issues, 1993 through 1994. This is a crossover between Valiant Comics and Image Comics. These are the, you know, the big two indies, uh, the ones that Wizard were really, really Oh, really up. hyping them up, yeah, especially Valiant and, at the time. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, while some people say the death of Superman was the death now, others say Death Mate might have been it. Uh, this is a seriously hyped crossover, plagued with ridiculous delays. And from also, the image it, side, but must From the image side, yeah. yes, yes. Uh, and uh, also the fact that it... it, it it kind of sucked. It wasn't very good. Uh, <laughs> that was a this, problem, too, right? That, that was a little bit of a problem. <laughs> now, this series is pretty much why Valiant sold to acclaim in 1994, and uh, they would have their own problems, which we discussed in long form during episode 106 of the Cosmic Treadmill, and uh, that was Captain and the Game Master, and it's available in the archives. In uh, December 1996... We're going to go back to Marvel here. They filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy protection here. Uh, We've seen this bankruptcy described as being caused by rampant comic book speculation, and that certainly contributed to Marvel's woes. But uh, we're going to show that uh, the reality is a little bit more, or a lot more complicated than that. Yeah. Again, we we have to reiterate that all these gimmicks, the variants, all these things that hurt the comic book stores in the long run, they really helped Marvel a lot. You know, they, they they made their money. Their sale to the comic book store was final. So... That was, you know, shipped is sold in the comic game uh, increasingly in this time and nowadays completely. But anyway, uh, in January 1989, investor Ronald Perelman bought Marvel for 80, 82.5 million, putting up 10.5 million of his own money and borrowing the rest from a syndicate of banks. We went over a little bit of that last episode. Immediately, Marvel upgraded its paper, and individual issues rose in price from 75 cents to one dollar with no appreciable loss in sales. Though remember, the non-returnable direct market now accounted for about 70% of sales. After just two years in the saddle, Perlman increased Marvel's revenue by 35%, and profits jumped by a factor of 10 to 5.4 million. While Marvel was robust, Perlman decided to take Marvel Entertainment Group public on July 15th, 1991. Spider-Man even showed up on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange to celebrate, so that was nice. Uh, But Perlman did something telling with these shares. 40% of the stock earnings went to his other holding companies, like Andrew and McMeal Publishing, and 60% was used to pay down bank debt. Notice 0% was going back to Marvel Comics. (laughs) Zero. (laughs) Now, at this point, under Perlman's and other investors' instruction, Marvel began churning out an obscene amount of product. And we're not just talking about comics. we got action figures, accessories, trading cards, anything you can put Marvel characters or logos on. Yeah. Was coming out. Sure. If we're just looking at comics, Marvel put out 1,373 issues in 1993 alone, which is about four for four per day every day. Wow. That's a lot of that's a lot of comics. Yeah. I mean that, that's I mean that in yeah the different issues of different series, not you know, in so. comics in the many millions, you know. So. <laughs> Now, as Marvel's value inflated, Ron Perlman used that le- used that as leverage to acquire other companies, further ballooning Marvel's value past anything reasonable. At this point, Perlman issued $800 million in high-risk, high-yield bonds against Marvel, normally known as junk bonds. This would put Marvel severely in debt as it attempted to pay out these bonds and pretty much led directly to that bankruptcy. Yep. Uh, point being, Marvel's bankruptcy wasn't the organic economic result of strange collecting anomaly, but a calculated effort to pump as much cash into investors' product, product, pockets for as long as the company remained soluble. Though it is worth saying that among the investors, Perlman did not completely divest. 
and in fact still owns a significant share of Marvel Comics. Though it is possible that he made no money from the bankruptcy, but uh, I'm sure he's made money he's, now. He's doing okay now. But it, <laughs> Don't it is, feel bad for him. It's the strange part, because all the other investors, if, if they pulled out at this point we're talking about, they walked away with many, many millions. You know, they they Absolutely. had made the maximum they could squeeze out of this thing. But Perlman stayed in. I don't know. I guess maybe he loves Spider-Man secretly. Could be. Uh, now, uh, Avi Arad and Isaac Ike Perlmutter, or Perlmutter, uh, they, they they were the owners of Toy Biz, and they sought to protect their company and swooped in and raised the money in order to purchase Marvel Comics. They then mar- merged Marvel Comics with Toy Biz in order to form Marvel Entertainment Incorporated in 1997. So that's how that happened, and that's what that's essentially the. Well, then Disney has showed up later on, but that's a story for another day, I guess. It is. It is. Uh, now, when Marvel went exclusive with Heroes World Distribution, Diamond reacted by outbidding Capital City for exclusive deals with Marvel's main rivals, DC Comics, as well as Dark Horse Image and Archie Comics. Capital City's response was to sign exclusive deals with Kitchen Sink Press and Viz Comics, but a year later faced the choice between bankruptcy and selling out. Diamond bought Capital City in the summer of 1996, assuming near control of the comics distribution system. The purchase price was not disclosed, but the acquisition brought an estimated $50 million in sales revenue to Diamond. In early 1997, Diamond also forged an exclusive deal with Marvel, giving Marvel its own section of comics in catalog previews, uh, not at the least because DC Dark Horse Image deal gave contractual prominence to those companies already. Later in 1997, Diamond's position in the comics industry as the sole source of most new comics products to comics specialty shops ultimately saw the company become the subject of an investigation by the U.S. Justice Department for possible antitrust violations. The Justice Department launched an antitrust investigation into the comics industry and the alleged monopoly of Diamond Comics. It was closed in November 2000 with no further action deemed necessary on the basis that, although Diamond enjoyed a monopoly in North American comic book direct market distribution, they did not enjoy a monopoly on book distribution, and that would be books including non-comic books. So... Kind of fuzzy, but at that time, no. there were still newsstand sales. I, I, you know, I remember even in 2000, so I guess sure. there was that. Yes. Now, uh, as uh, the distribu- distributors and publishers are doing the do do there are victims out there, and those victims are comic shops. Yeah. Uh, two-thirds of all comic book specialty stores closed from 1994 to 1998. In the spring of 1993, there were approximately 10,000 active comics accounts in the U.S., with an additional 1,000 overseas. Chuck Rosansky remembers, The pinnacle of this ridiculous numbers game was the 1992 Diamond Retailers Conference in Baltimore, Maryland. Steve Geppi had his lieutenants do a full-court press for attendance at the show, and an astounding 3,100, quote, retailers came to the conference. I remember one seminar where the Diamond staff asked how many people in the audience had gotten into the business within the past two years. Over half of the members in the audience raised their hands. Wow. It didn't take a genius to figure out that this was far too much growth in a very short period of time. By the end of the 90s, there were just over 2,000 comic shops in the U.S., yeah, and we remember seeing this dwindling as well. Uh, oh yeah, I know that the two my two favorite comic, comic book shops in my neighborhood uh, pretty much packed up and vanished overnight. Um, sure. What about what about by you? By me, uh, we uh, within walking distance we had probably six 
full-blown comic shops around the time wow. of the image launch and, and within walking distance. So like maybe within uh, like a like, like a six-mile square. Sure. Okay. You know, and uh, by the end, by the time of like the Age of Apocalypse, by the time of Heroes World, we were down to one. Wow. And it was the same one that was there before the boom. Well, so the the, you know, the one that was solid, yeah. I mean, there were so many little pop-up shops that showed oh, sure. up. And, uh, and in funny flea is, markets, like every every other stand would become a comic stand oh, for a little true. while. That is, very, that is very true. Yeah. Everyone was trying to sell off their old comics and, you know, like we say, make their uh, money to send the kids to college. Uh, I remember there being comic shops that would pop up in locations that didn't really have a lot of space, which is doesn't really work for a traditional comic shop because you sure. need all that space for all the back issues, not to mention all the current issues. But these guys, they, they just kind of just specialized in the hot comic for the minute. And uh, I think essentially they were getting a tax ID number to justify wholesale purchase for Probably. Ho- hoping to flip them later on. So there are pallets of these comics out there in the world somewhere. <laughs> literally, you, literally. Truly, uh, it's probably somewhere they're going to they're gonna be like the Ark of the Covenant. They'll open up a warehouse <laughs> and it'll be nonstop Jim Lee's uh, X-Men number one. Yeah, the 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 whole the whole uh, retailer thing became sort of like a like they used like the circus model, you know, like sell right. as much as you can and then just bug out overnight when people came to really to want to return on their investment. That's exactly yeah, that's exactly what uh, I think a lot of people definitely how Ron Perlman looked at his uh, machinations was just to like Absolutely. pump up that dollar value, pump up the stock value, and get the heck out Cash of town. Cash out and go. Uh, yep. Some economists would say that something similar might be happening today, but I wouldn't know anything about. Things outside of <laughs> comics. So uh, now, anyway, it's good to keep going. By 1998, uh, newsstand comic sales accounts for less than seven percent of overall comic sales, and sales in general, they ain't great. Uh, many remaining comic shops diversified their offerings, but beyond new comics and back issues, and more into related toys and collectibles, as well as merchandise like T-shirts. Uh, stores that have been hardcore comics and trading card outlets became pop culture hotspots. Shops hosted comic book reading clubs and game nights, uh, among other events. And I'm sure you remember this too, Chris. Back in the day, there were card shops, and that was it. They didn't sell comics. Oh yeah, uh, yeah which actually still still yeah. exists. And then there would be some comic shops that wouldn't do cards, although they pretty much knew they had to dabble a little bit the other way. Uh, sure. But yeah, the, I mean, the card thing around this time, I'm sure, is a whole other corollary story because that had its same huge speculation boom and then uh, you know deflated so sure i wish i could wish we could tell you more about that but we can (laughs) tell you a little bit about card games like magic the gathering and the obsessive collective sets based on the video game pokemon found retail homes in these comic shops Uh, you'd get a more tailored experience there for example you could buy a pack of Yu-Gi-Oh cards at toys r us but only the comic shop will have broken out and individually priced the rare cards Mm-hmm. Now, as the comic books themselves struggled to make profitable sales, many comic shops found a second life as a curated toy and antique stores. And, of course, this has led to a tremendous industry that creates collectibles that cater to adults, uh, for the most part available only in comic book stores. And our friends at Diamond quickly moved into this market, creating Diamond Select Toys. This was 1999. They not only distribute the merchandise, but make some of their own exclusive busts and statuettes, in collusion with the publishers, of course. Another thing creeping its way into the comic shops, manga. Now, manga are, in essence, Japanese comics. You can learn much more about manga by listening to episode 76 of The Cosmic Treadmill, where we read the first volume of Naoki Urasawa's Monster. But for the purposes of this episode, we'll just say that manga began penetrating the American comics market in the late 1980s. 
Initially, manga struggled in North America against anime, which was easier to dub than it is to translate a chunky book of manga comics uh, known as a Tonkaban. The matters would change when translator-entrepreneur Torin Smith founded Studio Proteus in 1986. Smith and Studio Proteus acted as an agent of tra- and translator of many Japanese manga, including Mas- Masamune Shiro's Appleseed and Kosuke Fujishima's Oh My Goddess for Dark Horse and Eros comics, eliminating the need for these publishers to seek their own contacts in Japan. The story of Studio Proteus and Torin Smith might be worth its own episode, actually. Uh, simultaneously, the Japanese publisher Shogakukan opened their U.S. subsidiary Viz, enabling Viz to draw directly on Shogakukan's catalog and translation sills. Am I, am I butchering that, Chris? I think you're good. I did all right. Thank you. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> Japanese publishers began pursuing a U.S. market in the mid-1990s due to a stagnation in their own domestic market for, mong- for manga. In 1997, Mix Entertainment began publishing Sailor Moon, along with Clamp's Magic Knight Ray Earth, Hitoshi Iwaki's Parasite, and Tsutomu Takahashi's Ice Blade in the monthly magazine Mix Zine. And then two years later, Mix Zine was renamed to Tokyo Pop. And Tokyo Pop would go on to be a, a long-lived publisher of sure. manga. They're 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 a lot smaller now, but they they did hit their stride in I the, I in the early two thousands. Shut down, which blew my mind. <laughs> they did shut down briefly, but wow. they uh, they come back and just do specialty stuff now. Right. Uh, now, in the following years, manga became increasingly popular, and new publishers entered the field, while the established publishers greatly expanded their own catalogs. By two thousand eight, the U.S. and Canadian manga market generated one hundred and seventy-five million dollars in annual sales. And in 2017, manga distributor Viz Media was the largest publisher of graphic novels and comic books in the United States, with a 23% share of the market. In response to this, lots of comic shops began building manga sections, and sometimes converting to manga-only shops beginning in the early 2000s. Which and is something. Like, yeah, you remember yeah. this. Yeah, this is before I even turned an eye to manga. I was so annoyed that... They were literally taking over. Taking up your your shop, right? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Uh, Like, there were stores just ditching their back issue section to put manga. And it's like, what is this? (laughs) Yeah, you know, in New York, there was was some manga. Like, I was aware of its existence even before that. But I do remember suddenly, like... Well, gosh, the, I go to the comic shop. There's a shelf of these, all these white books of the same trim and and you know uh, width, you know. And then mm-hmm. now there's two shelves. Now there's a bookshelf. Now the whole yep. back of the store is all this <laughs> these books. What what's going on here? Uh, you start to think, is this the Scientology section or what's going on back there? <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it it really did. It it took over and. Without a doubt, I'd say it saved a lot of shops uh, to be able sure. to sell that. It's funny that it has kind of come down in. I was going to say it popularity. was a bubble in and of itself because a lot of those stores would it would phase it out a few years later. But yeah. Uh, but yeah, I'm sure it bailed a lot of shops out in the interim for Abs- sure. Absolutely, yeah. I, I in in New York again, like the, you know, this is a stone market. I don't think any of them have totally phased it out, but they definitely did. Uh, reduce them a lot, yeah. you know. Whereas it used to take up about half a couple of these stores, and I think Midtown, which is the biggest of the of the stores here in New York, they still have like a floor dedicated to it. So, wow. uh, it's still it's still loved out there in the world. Absolutely. Uh, but speaking of graphic novels, in the early two thousands, the bookstore market began to challenge the direct market as a channel for sales of increasingly popular graphic novels and trade collections. And yes, folks. 
there is a difference. Uh, <laughs> the growth of interest in comics among mainstream booksellers and book publishers has led to several publishers arranging for bookstore distribution outside of Diamond. For example, Tokyo Pop through HarperCollins or Fantagraphics through W.W. Norton. And I know, I think DC and Marvel use Ingram, as a matter of fact, through, for bookstores. Mm. Uh, Never wanted to miss a trick, though. Diamond created Diamond Book Distributors in 2001, so they are another option. They are indeed. <laughs> uh, we talked about Wizard earlier. Let's talk about their end. In uh, November 2006, Wizard Editor-in-Chief and co-founder Pat McCollum was fired uh, after more than a decade with the company. Wizard would decline to say why he was removed. On February 21, 2007, Scott Gramling was announced as a new Editor-in-Chief. Soon after, longtime Wizard editor Brian Cunningham was removed, and that was August 2008. Uh, the final editor was former staff writer and managing editor Mike Cotton. On February 27, 2009, Wizard laid off 10% of its workforce, including its three staff writers, in order to make room for freelance writers. Wizard would be relaunched with issue 228, August 2010, which featured Mark Miller as a guest editor. The magazine went back to its strictly comic book roots, which featured a Green Hornet film cover and roundtable destruction uh, discussion, even, with creators in the comic book film industry. Despite all these changes, however, the magazine was losing subscribers at an unsustainable rate. By December 2010, the circulation was just 17,000 copies. On July, I'm sorry, January 24th, 2011, after it had already been reported by Rich Johnston at BleedingCool.com, Wizard announced that it was seizing publication and that its sister magazine, uh, Toy Fair, was also going to be canceled. See, they should have relaunched with a number one. That's the trick. That's the only way to juice your sales, buddy. Uh, and, and, you know, they, the way they did it, they, they went to, like, a like a bigger, like, tabloid-sized magazine where it doesn't I, look I, as cool on your shelf anymore. I do remember that, yeah. And yeah. It, it actually, what's funny is they're saying it kind of went back to its comic book roots, but I remember it being really movie-focused. Uh, when it first came back, is, is my it memory was. of it. It, but, it was very, you know, whatever. It was. Uh, its time had come and gone. That's all there is Certainly. to it. And those those people all now kind of work in other areas of comics journalism, or sure. even they or in the, the companies. In the yeah. companies, they work in DC and Marvel. So they all, yep. they all, or a lot of them, landed on their feet eventually. Now. The first inklings of digital comics may have been the web comics of the mid-1990s. Uh, Scott McCloud suggests that comics will all go digital in his book, Reinventing Comics, but in kind of a more abstract way. He doesn't really know what that's going to be. He just thinks that eventually um, you know, paper will not, no longer be needed. In uh, 2012, when asked by the AV Club about attracting new comics readers, Mark Wade said, It's really hard. I honestly think that if there is an answer, it involves digital. The problem with comics, and I've said this before, is that we have over the past 50 years very, very successfully taken what used to be a mass medium and successfully turned it into a niche market. Which is crazy, the idea that comics are a destination point now, that I can't find them anywhere. If I'm in the middle of the country, I have to get in a phone book and see if there's a store within 100 miles of me that even carries comics. This is why you don't see mass advertising for comics during movies, during the trailers. This is why you don't see mass advertising for comics in, say, a Got Milk sort of ad campaign. There's no Got Comics campaign. It's not because we don't want people to read comics. It's not because it's not an interesting way of advertising comics. The beauty of digital, the beauty of the iPad, the beauty of mobile devices is that that's the new newsstand. That gives us the potential to reach out to people and give them comics on a platform that is as ubiquitous to them as convenience stores were to you and me when we were growing up. 
That doesn't mean they'll automatically find comics. It doesn't mean that it's an automatic fix. I'm not saying that because we sold a million iPads today, that means there's a million other people going to read comics next week. But at least there's a fighting chance. There's a much better chance to reach them through the iPad than through comic stores. Marvel Comics pulled out of the newsstand distribution entirely in 2013, and DC discontinued much of its newsstand distribution in late 2013 and early 2014, though they continued to distribute a limited sale of returnable titles through Ingram Content Group serving Barnes & Noble and Media Solutions, which served books a million. But DC discontinued even this small quantity of bookstore-distributed single issues in the summer of 2017. Mm-hmm. Strangely, there's no obvious information when it comes uh, to digital comics, when digital comics began. It seems the first ones to appear were scans done by collectors in the late 1990s. And when we say digital comics, we're not talking about that uh, series <laughs> Shatter from first comics that right. ran from 85 to 88. Something you read on a tablet we're talking about now. Yes. You know. <laughs> now, in 2007, Marvel made available their Marvel Unlimited app, which is a Netflix-style service that makes available a growing backlist of Marvel's catalog. In July of that same year, Comixology.com was launched as an online community for comic book fans initially, and quickly moved into the digital distribution for DC Comics and several smaller publishers, sometimes having exclusive arrangements for specific titles, such as The Walking Dead by Robert Kirkman. The company was founded in 2007 by CEO David Steinberger, CTO John D. Roberts, and Peter Jaffe. They secured the interest of venture capitalists after winning a business plan competition held in held by New York University. Wow, all right. Yeah. In September 2011, <laughs> Comixology's comics application was the highest-grossing application in the App Store, and together with the branded applications of, for other comics publishers, accounted for a majority of their five top-grossing iPhone apps. That same month, DC Comics, Marvel, Archie, and every other publisher that offers digital comics began offering them on the same day as the print version became available. Yeah, that was a big deal that rubbed a lot of comics retailers the wrong way for obvious sure, reasons. But sure. uh, in a way, they kind of had to do it. They, you know, either got to throw in with your idea or you got to strike know, when the iron's hot. Exactly. And, yeah. You know, you either believe in it or you don't. Um, Comixology's patented guided view technology allows readers to read through comics in full screen or from panel to panel, mimicking the way an eye travels over a page, so they say, but really it also makes it suitable for various differently sizes devices, which is what I think the sure. uh, real thing is. Uh, in 2014, online retail giant Amazon purchased Comixology, making in-app purchases unavailable for a time but otherwise leaving the app unaffected cosmetically for better or worse. Even now, most comics can be purchased through the app, but for others, you have to jump through hoops to get the issue, and some are simply not available, so it's not perfect. So, has digital comic book distribution replaced the four-color printed comic? Well, definitely not, since printed comics still exist, as we know. Uh, and now, and are now more available than ever through online retailers like Discount Comic Book Service, uh, DCBS Service doc, or DCBService.com, uh, MyComicShop.com, and MidtownComics.com. Since the sales figures for digital comics and print comics, for that matter, are kept from the public, we can't really say how much of an impact they're having on the industry. With more digital exclusives and new initiatives like Comicsology Unlimited, which was launched in 2016. We can only guess that they're having some kind of effect. But, get back to Mark Wade. For his part, in 2013, Mark Wade wrote for 13thDimension.com, 
Several years ago, at a conference for comic book publishers and industry stalwarts, when comicsology was still an upstart and iPads were still a toy, I came out aggressively against the old ways. I wasn't the first to do so, but I am loud. I rallied hard that we should all be turning our attention to the emerging digital market and that as an industry, we couldn't continue to be held hostage by our, significant, by our only significant print distributor, America's 1,800 maybe comic specialty stores. I argued that tablets and smartphones were the new newsstand, the new outreach tool. As the vast majority of publishers and retailers turned on me for preaching heresy and descended upon me like a fat kid on a chocolate cake, I maintained that the old ways were doomed to die more quickly than we could imagine, and that the future of the comics medium hinged on digital distribution. And you know what? I was wrong. He continues to say, Had you told me three years ago that comic sales in America would be up by a significant number when all other forms of print media were shedding readers at a brutal pace, I'd have been the one to call you a heretic. Yet, here we are. Print comics aren't the business juggernaut they were in their heyday and may never be again. But no one can deny that there's a sustained boom going on and no hint of an oncoming bust. And here's what's really cool. The same thing is happening with digital comics. They're not only matching print's growth, they're exceeding it. A year or two ago, when readers, new, old, and lapsed, began reporting that reading comics online spurred them into stores, we considered that to be an anecdotal we considered that to be anecdotal evidence that there was a positive symbiotic relationship between the two. Today we have hard data to back that up. Every shred of evidence goes to show that one does not steal from the other. Not only can digital and print coexist, they can feed one another. Digital is the outreach, but brick and mortar is the community gathering place, the sales platform, the pop culture oasis. In 2013, Mark Wade became part owner of Alter Ego Comics in Muncie, Indiana. So I think he threw in back with print again. It sounds like because to the me. bread was buttered. Yeah, uh, you know, but you know, it's it's. I just got to reiterate. You know, we get our our numbers on comics on numbers shifts, on which shift. is yeah. which is actually a true hard sale number for the publisher. But we have no clue about the digital. It really could be almost anything. We just there's no way to know. It's you know, it's one copy. You sell it forever. So uh, we believe we believe any number was given to us. Cause literally, you know, as high or as low as you want to yep. say it. I'm sure it's different for different comics. I'm sure some people. So uh, you know, it's that. Like I say, it's clearly having some effect, or they wouldn't be making any more. But they are. Perfect. So it's it's Perfect. it does something. Uh, now, despite the tremendous glut of comics sold during the speculators' boom, there are a lot of comics that have retained and increased their value over time. Uh, mainly comics published before the speculator boom, but <laughs> there are a few that can still turn a buck. Uh, eBay.com is a website where users can buy and sell almost any product or service in a variety of ways, including by public online auction. The auction web was founded in California on September 3, 1995, by French-born Iranian-American computer programmer Pierre Omidyar as part of a larger personal site. One of the, the one of the first items sold on auction web was a broken laser pointer for fourteen dollars and eighty three cents, and this is the very telling thing about eBay and everything. Astonished, <laughs> Omidyar contacted the winning bidder to ask if he understood that the laser pointer was broken. In his responding email, the buyer explained, "I'm a collector of broken laser pointers." There's something for everybody out there. Something That's what they everybody. say. Yep. Uh, so reportedly, eBay was simply a side hobby for Omidyar until his internet service provider informed him he would need to upgrade to a business account due to the high volume of traffic to his website. 
The resulting price increase from $30 a month to $250 forced him to start charging those who used eBay, which people were fine with doing. It resulted in the hiring of Chris Chris Agarpow as eBay's first additional employee to process mailed checks coming in for fees. In its earliest days, eBay was really the only only a per- in its earliest days, eBay was really only a purveyor of nostalgia in old toys and games, and uh, fitting very neatly in that category, also comic books. Today, eBay can be a storefront from all kinds of brand new goods, but it wasn't always that way. By the late 1990s, most comic shops stayed afloat by peddling their most worthwhile issues back issues on eBay, a practice which many, if not most, still maintain to this day. Some individuals make a living buying comic book collections for cheap and then flipping the most pricey comics for profit while shifting the rest for cheap in bulk or sets, runs, whatever. Uh, Still, in both instances, eBay sellers usually have to diversify into other things, such as toys and trading cards, in order to make a a full online business. This isn't necessarily a a bad thing. We're just, uh, you know... Just mentioning it. Yeah, for completionist's sake. What's interesting is you Uh, you find a lot of comic books... uh, Guys that do that, they become record uh, experts too. You know, you know, sure, you know so, so sure. suddenly they know a whole bunch because it's like kind of they're, they're they live in the in same places yeah. a lot of times. <laughs> now, eBay, along with Amazon.com, are pretty much the only two e commerce sites that have weathered the dot com bubble burst of the early 2000s and the recession of 2008. And whatever comes in the future. Uh, So San Diego Comic-Con attracted approximately 165,000 people in 2015. New York Comic-Con brought in 180,000 attendees in 2016. The market declined 6.5% in 2017, according to estimates by online magazine ICV2 and Comicron, which is an industry analysis site that we use all the time. Mm -hmm. Uh, Total sales of comics and graphic novels in the the United States and Canada were 1.015 billion in 2017, down $70 million from 2016, but still not a bad chunk of money, boy. Sure. Uh, By the numbers, it looks like the industry is contracting slightly, yet with the fluctuating number of titles published, emerging new publishers, various price points, and of course, that ever-elusive digital comic sales number, it's really difficult to get a full picture of the industry. Uh, Which is kind of by design, I think. Uh, (laughs) An article by Heidi McDonald for TheBeat.com has a quote from retailer Mike Sterling. He said, I've been in this business long enough to have heard multiple times from multiple sources the comic book as we know it will be over and done with in, followed by a predicted time frame just near enough in the future to supposedly pose an immediate threat, but far enough away that when the time comes and goes, no one will remember to go back and tell the comic book Cassandra he or she was wrong. Five years is the period usually suggested. Oh, we've we've both heard that. I've heard probably I've our said whole it collecting career. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> now, currently, it is easier to self-publish digitally and in print than ever before. More new talent seems to be putting out more new series than ever before. It looks like people and diamond distributors are still willing to gamble on comic books, at least for now. Whatever happens to the format, the language of comics remains intact and will continue to grow and change. 
as happens to all languages. That's right. You got to remember, comics are not just a uh, pamphlet, saddle staple pamphlet. Uh, you know, for sale at your comic shop. There are a lot of ways to get and read comics, and absolutely, as Chris said, more than ever before. Sometimes it blows me away. You, the places, Staggering. yeah, the places <laughs> comics just appear and crop up, and the number of people. It's it's like everything else. You know, uh, beyond comics, with you know, music and all entertainment, all all kinds of media like that. It's a great and horrifying thing that Certainly. there's so much out there. But overall, I'm very, I feel very positive about it. And uh, that does wrap up our two-part series on the direct market, which was uh, lingering around for far too long. Uh, <laughs> I hope that that created a good picture. And you know, at the end, we kind of just talked about what happened to read the retail side because that is the uh, kind of boots on the ground side of the direct market is the, the sure. guys that are selling at the store. But if we missed anything, if you have any comments, if you have any stories of your own about your uh, travails through the direct market, you can write to us at weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. Find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash cosmic t-mail history. Or on Tumblr, cosmic t-mailhistory.tumblr.com. See us over on Twizzer, Twitter at cosmic t-mail, or I'm on Twitter at Reggie Reggie. I'm at Ace Comics. You can see our weekly writings about new DC Comics and sometimes older ones, too, at WeirdScienceDCComics.com. And you see Chris's personal writings on a DC comic, different one every day of the week, at ChrisIsOnInfiniteEarths.com, uh, where you recently did the first appearance of Hal Jordan. Yes. And I will say... Green Lantern number 100. No yeah. more about... Yeah, Green Lantern number <laughs> one, the first... Uh, 100. 100. <laughs> the uh, first appearance, and we will say no more about that. Go head over to chrisisaninfiniteearth.com and make sure to comment on that post and tell them, tell them what's what. Absolutely. Uh, you can also visit another site to give us some comments. That's weirdcomicshistory.blogspot.com, where you'll be able to find our show notes for most of the episodes we've done, as well as a chronological listing of all of our series, uh, Weird Comics History, The Cosmic Treadmill, and even the uh, current Young Animal Gatherum series, which uh, is catching us up on that poor and uh, demised imprint. That's that, right, uh, yeah. That's, I was uh, going to say left us too soon, but it didn't. It didn't. It, it <laughs> kind of stuck around and lingered a little long, but that's all right. You know, that's uh, not uncommon in this game. But uh, I think that's all we got from this time. Chris, got anything else for him? That'll do it. Well, until next time, folks, I want you to keep it weird historically. See ya. If it seems a little time is needed,